Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening and welcome to the History of Alchemy podcast. I'm Travis Dow. And I'm Pete Coleman from the Bohemican podcast. Today we're going to talk about an alchemist that was no less than a queen, none other than Christina of Sweden. So in uh, Swedish, she was known as Christina Augusta, and she was born on the 18th of of December in 1626, and uh, she lived until 1689, so she later adopted the name Christina Alexandra. She had, as queens tend to do, she had many titles, but they're they're pretty awesome. So I'll <laughs> they I'll are they are pretty kick ass. Yeah. <laughs> so she was queen regent of Sweden from 1633 to 1654, and some of those titles were queen of Swedes, Goths, Vandals. Awesome. Yeah, might as well just be queen of awesome. Yeah. I mean, really. <laughs> uh, she was also the grand princess of Finland and duchess of Ingria, Estonia, Livonia, and Karelia. She was the only surviving legitimate child of King Gustav II Adolf and his wife Maria Eleonora of Brandenburg. Her dad died at the Battle of Lützen when she was only six years old, so she instantly succeeded her father to the throne of Sweden. She was the heir presumptive from a very young age, and so um, it was just assumed that if she was groomed correctly that she would fill in very nicely as the queen of this entire uh, area. Being the daughter of a Protestant champion of the Thirty Years' War, she caused a scandal when she abdicated her throne and converted to Roman Catholicism in 1654. What? Yep. (laughs) She spent her later years in Rome, becoming a leader of the theatrical and musical life there. As a queen without a country, she protected uh, many artists and and projects that were around her at the time, and she was one of the few women buried in the Vatican Grotto. Um, Travis, I had the opportunity to actually go to Stockholm last year, and inside the royal palace, they had uh, a special exhibit on Christina. You met her? I met her. Did no. you get her autograph? I did not. She's she's not talking. <laughs> she's, she's not feeling so good. Um, it, you know, it, it's interesting because from what I gathered from this, this exhibition in, in the royal palace of Stockholm was that she had a lot of haters. There's a lot of haters, uh, haters clubs around there, her. there, yeah. And um, because she abdicated the, the throne, she, she had issues with uh, you know, switching religions. And if you're talking about the Thirty Years' War, you know how important religious uh, um, you know, uh, well, allegiances she were. She was a generation away. Yeah. It's not even, yeah. At, at the least. And so um, she didn't fall into line as what most women did and at the time, especially the ones of royal blood. Um, and this kind of led her a little bit to kind of dabble in, in things that were outside maybe her circles. And that's kind of why we're talking about her tonight on, on yeah, Alchemy. I, yeah, because she's fascinating, actually. And um, her reasons for wanting to convert to Catholicism is, is fascinating. Um, but So she was kind of known for being moody, also intelligent, um, interested in books and manuscripts, religion, alchemy, and science. So... While she was still in Stockholm, she kind of had a vision for Stockholm to be sort of a Athens of the North. She was very heavily influenced by the Counter-Reformation, and she was increasingly attracted to the kind of Baroque and Mediterranean culture that 
eventually brought her to Rome, right? Um, and it pushed her away from the Protestant line of thinking as well. Yeah, and and um, she really did. There was a lot of gossip and rumor around court and, and around her life, and um, we'll get to some of that, but... She had supposedly, I mean, again, this is, a lot, you know, this is gossip and rumor, but she had an unconventional lifestyle and very kind of masculine dress and behavior. She wore pants, and, folks. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so um, in fact, there's, yeah, there's all kinds of rumors that I, I didn't even include in the show because I don't know how historically accurate they are. But Well, there, there are rumors. You have to understand that um, Stockholm of this era, uh, of the uh, 17th century, uh, uh, was was pretty much like the San Francisco of Europe. Uh, it was forward thinking. It was liberal thinking. Uh, they pushed away from from uh, Catholic Rome in many yeah. many ways and tradition and traditions. Ways, yeah. And it's um, it's common throughout this. And Christina kind of led the the way in the sense of um, could a ruler be someone that, like we said before, thinks outside the box? Could a ruler actually have? Um, what the rumors said was that she, that she was homosexual, um, and there were other homosexual leaders uh, in Sweden uh, throughout its history uh, that kind of broke form, and it was just well, just yeah. No, but but again, when I was reading some of this stuff, I just I couldn't get a handle on whether any of it was true or not because, like you said, she had a lot of haters. There was a lot of people at court that, especially when she started to um, kind of move towards Catholicism. I mean, that's, that's almost seen seen as treason, as, you know. And that I mean, she was alive during the Thirty Years' War. So, well, look at Catherine the Great from Russia. I mean, you know, we don't know. I mean, there's a lot of yeah, bad yeah. things said right. about her, but she might have just been a very powerful woman with a lot of haters. So, you, yeah, you, you got to take this with a grain of salt. But a big that that's my point is that um, if we look at her today, and and she's in all kinds of I mean, throughout you know ever since her death. Um, she's been in plays and operas and and even um, famous movies, um, and she generally been she's been betrayed. She's even in kind of more modern comedies and you know mostly in Sweden, I would suppose. But but um, even pretty recently, and she's kind of been portrayed as um, gay or very like overtly masculine or um, you know just kind of dressing really funny and, and being quirky. And I read through a lot of those the theories, and, and I just you just don't know if that was gossip because people didn't like her, or they're trying to create false rumors, or if she really was kind of quirky and and maybe even homosexual. It's just I, no one really knows, and I don't know. So I I, I left a lot of that stuff yeah, out. And not but. necessarily that it really matters in in this situation, other than painting the picture of what people thought of her at the time. But no matter what, she was. A woman of influence and a woman of uh, of mark. Yeah, but I mean, we'll talk about some of that stuff. But if if um, if you want to get a scope of how many how much gossip and rumors there were, you can go to just the Wikipedia page. Probably half the page is that. It's like all the the theories about what she was and what she wasn't and and how she dressed. Um, but if you if you look at portraits of her, she looks she looks pretty normal. Maybe she was wearing kind of loose trousers and one or two. But um, yeah, it's 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 really hard to say. What interests me far more was that almost certainly was true is that her practice in alchemy basically preoccupied her for most of her adult life. So and not just that, we're about to do a show on Rosicrucianism. Um, even as as early as the next show or or in a show or two, it might I mean I have so much stuff on it. It might be a two parter, but 
um, she also has some pretty intriguing Rosicrucian connections. So the original Rosicrucian pamphlet was was uh, in 1614 and is, you know, basically 10, 12 years before she was born. And it, it kind of spread these, you know, this these ideas of a new age and like this universal reform of, of like arts and um, were definitely circulated among, you know, Paracelsians um, were some of the groups. But uh, especially in Northern Europe, these ideas kind of had a stronghold, like Sweden, Germany, uh, um, Protestant countries, England even uh, later. So, you know, it's, it's really interesting. But uh, in Italy, where she would eventually move, uh, Rosicrucians had more of an alchemical twist to it. So their, their metaphors and everything were, were very much like when we talk about Reformation, um, like universal reformation, then they would talk more in terms of like transmutation. So, um, you know, that, that they would literally transmutate the future into a golden age. Um, you know, and it's very kind of poetic, but, but especially in Italy, it had a much, I don't know about much, I mean, it's all relative. Rosicrucian has strong alchemical connections, you know, in, in symbology and, and all that. But in Italy, I would say especially. While the royal antiquarian in Stockholm, uh, Jonas Burrus, uh, dedicated Christina a manuscript copy of the of the speculations on the mystical origin of runes in for, in 1643 and a copy of the uh, uh, apocalyptic work The Roar of the Northern Lion in 1644 it is not known whether he showed her uh, his reply to the Rosicrucian fama uh, his fama as escanza ridu of of 1616 of course perhaps influenced by spiritual readings Christina wanted to institute an order of Emmanuel in 1646 but her advisor, Johann Aldersavos, said that it would be regarded as a child's play, and the idea never really materialized. It's pedantic. It is pedantic. Trivial pedantic. and pedantic. So instead, she instituted the much more mature, apparently, Order of Amaranthi in uh, 1653. Much less pedantic, if you ask me. That's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, with its emblems of an evergreen garland signifying immortal life. The amaranth leaves were known by the Greeks to grow in colchis beyond the Black Sea. She conferred the order on her Spanish aides who helped her prepare her conversion to Catholicism after her abdication in 1654. She left Sweden. Obviously, she couldn't just convert to Catholicism and stay put. So she she settled in Rome and basically became famous for her, her conversion. I mean, this was a big deal. This would have been on CNN for five days in a row. Um, prior to that, however, Christina had been approached by the alchemist Johannes Frank, who described her future reign as the fulfillment of Paracelsus's prophecy of a return of Helios Artista and of Sindivogius's remember we did a show on that guy? Oh, I did, yeah. yeah. Okay. Vision of the, <laughs> the rise of a metallic monarchy in the north. Um, so with these visions in store, Frank urged the queen to start searching for the ruby red powder of the philosophers, who we've talked about a lot. Um, he expressed these hopes in a tract that he offered her in 1651, and a year later, 1652, Christina was offered a text described as Magia Kabbalistica by the hermetic engraver Michel Leblanc, thus meditating the offer of Rabbi Menasseh ben Israel. Leblanc called a copy of Jacob Burma's little prayer book from the Beminist and mystic Abraham von Frankenberg and proceeded to translate it into French while in Stockholm in 1653. So Christina was now turning towards Catholicism, but it's possible that she heard of the translation project from Leblanc, uh, who acted as her uh, art curator. 
At about this time, she introduced the Greek specialist Johannes Schefferus uh, to write a history of Pythagoreans. It was published a decade later in 1664. Christina's preference for Greek manuscripts was, was criticized by Descartes when he visited Stockholm in 1650. Christina said in reply that she thought his ideas were already formulated by the skeptic Sectus Empiricus and by St. Augustine himself. Snap. Snap, girlfriend. Right. Take that out. She, she, showed, she showed him. Fierce. Dude, she's, she's rough. It's like Descartes, yeah. take that. Take that. Who do you think you, you are? You don't even know. Is that the guy that said, I think, therefore I am? He said you stuff. You don't think shit. <laughs> she also read a copy of Iamblichus's De Mysterius Egyptica, a text that uses Platonic and Hermetic sources in its descriptions of theurgy and divination, methods of coming into contact with gods and demons. Iamblichus is uh, really interesting. There's, there's some court intrigue here where Christina had Monaldesco at Fontainebleau murdered. Uh, Monaldesco had betrayed the queen's French-supported plan to rise to power by a surprised atta- attack on the Spanish rule in Naples. So this was while she was in, in Italy. She, there was a lot of intrigue. Like she had this, this plot to um, you know, get the French to support and attack Naples, basically, who was ruled by the French. And this Monaldescu stood in the way. So, yeah, it was, it was a huge thing. Again, so she had him offed. CNN for five days. Yeah. It was like, yeah, it was, it was crazy. In 1656, as Mino Gabriel points out, one of um, Francisco Molicios uh, performed some verse in, in La Bugia in Christina's Academy with phrases like La Bugia, El Leganto, El Verata, Alchemia. Uh, Christina thus almost certainly came into contact with poets and alchemists who had taken part in the Rosicrucian expedition, expectations. Rather. Um, she also came in to know some of the aspects of alchemy and were to collect and practice it. Uh, there's a drawing with some comments uh, uh, that talk about this with alchemical distillation equipment, which I actually got to see in person and, in Stockholm. She drew that stuff herself. She drew that yeah. stuff herself. Yeah. Now, there, there's a lot of the equipment that we talked about in alchemical performances uh, I got to see actually. We're talking about the the uh, the glass, um, yeah, the, the glass alambic that was actually uh, there as well in Stockholm um, in her in in this presentation in the royal palace, and uh, there, all the other things that she was involved. So to really kind of get an idea about her, she wasn't just, it was a passing fancy. She really bought into the idea of of alchemy, and she helped uh, perpetuate uh, some of these thoughts. And now you know, Travis, we talked about a few women in the alchemical world. She's got to be one of them as well because she really oh, yeah. she really pushed forward uh, alchemical uh, um, uh, ideas. She's not the only monarch, women monarch alchemist that we're going to talk about, but but yeah, definitely one of the most interesting. Um, she also owned some forty alchemical manuscripts by the foremost medieval authors, um, and also some practical handbooks, but including works by Geber, Johann Scotus, Arnold de Villanova, Raymond Lull, Albertus Magnus, Thomas Aquinas. Bernard Trevisano. That was our last show. We did a program on him. We did a program on the last five people I mentioned, but (laughs) but Bernard was our was our last one. Uh, George Ripley, who we've talked about, Um, and then also George Anrach d'Argentine, Johann Grashof, and Rosarium Philosophorum, with it with its alchemical imagery of merging the solar king and the lunar queen into a hermaphroditic union kind of thing. So. I think she would have. She would have really liked the show. She would have tuned in. I think. Um, yeah. 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 We got. Yeah. We, we got it covered. There's also a Porta Magica raised in 1680. Anyways, it's in the Roman Gardens of 
Palombara, which carries a portal stone with an emblem from Hernicus Marathansos, a chemical allegory, Arium Seculum Redivivum of 1621. It consists of a cross above a circle in which is inscribed a hexagram with the text Centrum in Trigono Centri. Mino Gabriella draws attention to the geometrical construction and shows that it is similar to that of the 21st emblem of Michael Myers. That's a famous guy. Did we talk about him? Yeah, not he was not the comedian. <laughs> I knew you were going to say, who's Shrek's voice? I will end you. Uh, wasn't he also the uh, murderer I don't know. In, in Friday the 13th? Yes. Yeah. I don't know if we talked is about that him. Is him too? But yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, same guy. Um, yeah, he's come up in my books a lot. I don't know if we ever did a show on him yet. I don't think so. He's on my list. His emblem is called A- Atalanta Fugiens, which was in Frank- published in Frankfurt 1617, where a man with a pair of compasses is in the process of constructing a hexagram by drawing a triangle within a larger circle, while at its base a square is placed within a smaller circle. Did I lose you? Yes. Palombara's door is flanked by alchemical insignia and, and various Latin devices describe the alchemical process. The seven signs are taken from Johannes de Montsnyder Commentatio de Farmaco Catolico, which is uh, published in Amsterdam in 1666. And 1666. And the seven signs are in sequence, and we've heard these before. It's Saturn, lead, Jupiter, tin, Mars, iron, Venus, bronze, Mercury, antimony, and vitriol. Um, the door still stands to be seen in the Piazza Vittorio Emanuela in Rome. You know, the legend circulates, Travis, saying that the door was raised as a com- commemoration of a successful transmutation that took place in Christina's chambers. This version of events was first told in 1804 in an Italian description of Rome, in which it is said that the northern youth, a Giovanni uh, Ultramontane, came to Christina's court and produced some scraps of gold, but that he then disappeared. So, a little bit of mystery there. After her death, she was elected symbolic head, Basilisa, of the poets forming the Academy Arcadia, thus continuing her own series of academies held in her palace. There's, there's an inscription on this Porta Magica, which is, which is pretty interesting. I found a translation. So, it's topped with the Hebrew inscription, Ruach Elohim, or Spirit of the Lord. And around the emblem is, a, is some Latin text. Uh, in another plate, which is now lost... Uh, it showed passing by opening the door of the villa, Lasson obtained the rich fleece of Medea. Also on the porta, there's an inscription alluding to the travels of, of the Argonauts. It, it translated, it says, The Sparian dragon guards the opening of the magical garden, and without Hercules, Jason would not have tasted the, the delicacies of Colchis. And from left to right, the inscription state, <clears throat> When in your house, black ravens will give birth to white doves, and then you are going to be called wise. The diameter of the sphere, the tau of the circle, the cross of the globe, are of no use to the world. He who knows how to burn with water and wash with fire makes out of the earth heaven and out of the heaven precious earth. If you will throw the earth over your head with its hair, you will convert into stone the torrents of water. When Azoth and fire whitens Latona, Diana will come without clothes. Our dead son lives. The king turns from the fire and takes pleasure in the occult conjunction. It is the occult work of the true sapience to open the earth in order to generate salvation for the people. And on the threshold, there is the short line which can be read both ways. If you sit, you cannot go. If you don't sit, go. 
So there is no evidence to determine exactly when Christina started with alchemy, but her involvement tended to increase towards the end of her life. In the summer of 1667 in Hamburg, Christina experimented with the messianic prophet and alchemist Giuseppe Francesco Bori, with Cardinal Azzolino, wrote her that she had distanced herself from Bori because he, w- he was searched by the Inquisition. So really needed to disconnect A wanted man. That. Yeah. Exactly. Christina at the time also corresponded with another alchemist, Johann Rudolf Glauber. Uh, she, was also, uh, she also took interest in the uh, phosphorus discovered by Henning Brandt. Remember we talked about that guy? We did. Dude, that was a weirdly popular show. Henning Brandt. Everybody, guy, everybody enjoyed the, that one. Everyone loves hearing about a guy distilling his own pee. In her collection of spiritual medieval manuscripts, she had some over 2,000 items. So th- this is pretty cool. So she had texts by Joachim di Fiore and Campanella. Also on the list were the copy of the Hermetic Asclepios. Her collection included Trithemius's Steganographia, um, which was in Latin, published in 1344, and John Dee's Monas Hieroglyphica. So we just did an episode about John Dee not too long ago, and he was a huge influence on Rosicrucianism, and they even used his symbol, the, the Monas Hieroglyphica, on their title page, basically. Really interesting stuff. She also owned part of the Picatrix and the Latin version of the Sefer HaRaziel, which is a book of angelic magic. Her collection also included Paracelsus's works, a chemical work of Johannes Toyonaisa and Andreas Libavios. Um, in 1655, she gave a large collection of alchemical manuscripts from Prague to her librarian Isaac Vossius. These were once owned by none other than who? Rudolph II. Now there he is again. Every He's show. He's in every show. <laughs> well, not, not quite, but, <laughs> but basically. And so, so Rudolph II's collection, who we've talked about before, they're written in German, Czech, Latin. Um, that collection, which, man, I would love to see, is at the uh, Codices Vossiani Kimiki at the University of Leiden. So remember, 30 Years' War. So a lot of Rudolph II stuff ended up from Prague ended up in Stockholm. Christina's father, the king of, of, of Sweden, was was in charge of a lot of this stuff. Now, those of us that, if I can plug my show, uh, Bohemian uh, show, uh, we do talk a lot about uh, the connections between uh, you know the Czech people, the Bohemians at the time, and when the Swedes came down on behalf of the uh, the Catholic co- uh, coalition, uh, they came down uh, to basically protect the Catholicism of Bohemia uh, from Protestant reformations. And so when they came down, they not only tried to sack Prague, they um, also went through the entire uh, length of what is known now as the Czech Republic in the 21st century. And they just started looting and taking what they wanted, uh, all the way down to Moravia, close to the borders of Austria. That included what we've talked to uh, on several occasions on my show, and I think we mentioned on Travis's Alchemy Show, on taking the Devil's Bible. That was also yeah. part of the booty. It took like two people to... Yep. Absolutely. They, they took the stuff from the monasteries. They took whatever they get their hands on. They took it right back up to Stockholm. So today... The, the Devil's Bible. Let me just make that clear yeah. to people. That's like it's like three feet by three feet, like a meter by a meter by half that. By, uh, on heavy know. vellum. Yeah. Right. Like some 200 and something sheep and goats had to die to make that book. It is a huge book. 
It's like, I don't know, I can't remember, 150 pounds, something like 70 kilos, something. And, and they carted it back on a cart with armed guards all the way back to Sweden. So, yeah. so that's just some of the things. But when you, you can imagine that stuff that wasn't just, if it wasn't destroyed, unfortunately, the stuff that was actually taken back to Sweden that they found in Prague, uh, which was the seat of, of power at the time, uh, uh, for, for Rudolf II, they took, they, they took all that stuff that was left over from Rudolf's reign some years before and took it back up to, to Stockholm. That included a lot of what Christina had in her collection that was pretty much left from her father. We, we mentioned at the beginning that, that she was obviously a very powerful and kind of forceful woman. Now, she claimed that in her mind, again, these, this is something that she claimed. That's, this is why I'm saying it. So she claimed that her mind was entirely masculine and that she lacked what she saw as normal faults of womanhood. Her words, not mine. Um, this belief was to materialize in her ardent hope for real transmutation. So in her collection of papers that she testamented to Cardinal Azzolino, now in Stockholm, there's an Italian text on which Christina has written that it was given to her in, in 1682. In it, Christina's abdication and travel to Rome is first described. In that text, it, says, it, it speaks of Alexander's future travel to Constantinople and to convert the Turks. Since she, as an ex-queen, took the name Christina Alexandra in Rome, it appears that the prophecy with this kind of powerful metamorpho- metamorphosis spoke to Christina's inner dreams of perfecting herself. You could interpret this in the Aristotelian view of women as undeveloped men um, had a role to play, not our views, that's you know Aristotle, but also the alchem- alchemical vision of polarities and, and ultimate perfection. So kind of this, this transmutation of self, basically. There are obviously some doubts of her expertise. Um, in a letter to Azzolino in Hamburg in 1667, she writes of the report of a successful transmutation pre- performed by a Dutch peasant. The learned Dr. Helvetius, who formerly had been skeptical towards alchemy, um, but, and, but now guaranteed his fulfillment. So Christina adds that with one grain of... The projection powder, one is able to convert 500 pounds of lead, that is like, you know, 250 kilograms, into 24 karat gold. So this is way out of proportion because normally you would say like one grain is more like 15 grams of gold. But she does not say that the result was obtained through a multiplication process. So maybe this was when she was still naive. It's, you know, hard to say. But um, she grew she grew to learn more, especially after meeting Bordia and after setting up her own laboratory in Rome. So Christina did know something of alchemy. She claimed that while it had been recently degraded by charlatans, it remained as the royal scientist. So actual alchemy, not what the charlatans were doing, was still like very good science, according to her. Um, According to her kind of like platonic ideals, she had medals made as a gift to her visitors and it carried a, a shining sun on one side and the text on the other with neither false nor borrowed light. This was how she liked to present herself, i.e. as a kind of philosopher queen, right? Which I think is very interesting. Yeah, so she was kind of against the rationalism of Descartes, but, you know, she liked the age-old... I, I mean, that's the thing. I think she just loved the old, the idea of tradition and, like, old science. And, I mean, that's why she converted to Catholicism in the first place. I think she just she just liked the mystique of of some of the older traditions. So she, she clung on to older philosophy as well. So Christina had asked for a simple burial at the end of her life, uh, but the Pope insisted on her being displayed in a lit de parade uh, for four days in the Rio pa- Palace. 
Uh, she was embalmed, covered with white brocade, a silver mask, and a gilt crown and scepter. So really given a definite royal burial. The queen wore with a thin mantle, decorated with hundreds of crowns of fur bordered with ermine under the, uh, a splendid garment in two pieces, thin gloves and drawers of knitted silk and a pair of elegant textile booties. That's a quote actually given on her, on, uh, her death. In similar fashion to the Pope's, her body was placed in three coffins, one of cypress, one in, a, in lead, and finally one made of oak. The funeral procession led from Santa Maria Veselia uh, uh, to St. Peter's Basilica, where she was buried within the, the Grotto Vatican. Um, only one of three women ever were given this honor. So really, she was mm-hmm. given a, a place of honor yeah. uh, upon her death. Her intestines were placed in a high urn from 2005 to 2011 A.D., of course, uh, where his grave was moved. Her marble sarcophagus was positioned next to that of John, uh, Pope John Paul II. Mm-hmm. So, you know, bring, we'll talk about a little bit of, of history here, but recently um, she's also been known to uh, have more people kind of think about where her status should be, which is pretty elevated. So, yeah, that, that was a really fun one to, to research there's a lot more I could have added about um, her family heritage and, and who her family was. And, you know, any, anytime we talk about a, a monarch, um, there's all kinds of other uh, stuff that goes along with it, like her childhood and her life. But I wanted to just focus on the, focus on the, on the really interesting stuff, to me at least. So um, well, she is really interesting. If, she, she was a true believer you yeah, know, in, I mean, in many things. It's not only just religion, but also in alchemy. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like um, we, we cut out a lot of her her life and some parts of who she was just to, to get to the alchemical part, because there's, there's a lot of it, uh, even the alchemical part. Um, but yeah, if you're interested, I would, I would encourage you to uh, read more about her. And, and um, at some point when I get around to it, I'll, I'll put more on my my website about her because because there's a lot of uh, a lot of good stuff that we just didn't have time to get to so thank you very much for listening thanks take care you've been listening to the history of alchemy podcast with travis dow and pete coleman for more information about this episode other episodes and other information about alchemy alchemists and related subjects visit historyofalchemy.com find us on itunes subscribe review and don't forget to rate us We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, ideas, and corrections to podcast at historyofalchemy.com or get in touch via Facebook on the History of Alchemy podcast page or Twitter at Alchemy Podcast. Tune in to our sister podcast all about the Czech Republic, Bohemican, which is also available on iTunes or on bohemican.com. Until next time on the History of Alchemy podcast, thank you for listening.